Welcome to another week of Latter-day Conversations with me, Mike, and Cade with you here today. We are excited for this episode. We've got some um, great questions as always. These ones are pretty deep. I mean, we're, we're hitting some really hard, uh, fundamental, philosophical, and um, I, I mean, religious as always questions. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So uh, we'll start off this first one. Um, and I'm going to ask Cade you this question. So according to Jesus's words in Matthew 5, verse 32, and in another place, Matthew 19, 3, verses 9, divorce is sinful when done for any reason other than the case where a spouse has committed adultery. Why don't we teach and enforce this today in the church? And we can look up that scripture if we need to for reference. We probably should for the listeners, but just to show that it, it is pretty clear. Or is it up to you? Answer it how you will. All right. Um, I don't know. I think, yes, Jesus obviously knows what he's talking about when he uh, teaches gospel doctrine. Um, but I do think that there are some exceptions that can be added that are not part of the rule that is very blanketly stated, um, as Jesus basically goes out and says. And we can get that pulled up, too. Um but where he, he essentially goes about saying that if you put away a, your wife for any other reason, except it be for adultery, um, you commit adultery as, as well, is, is essentially what he says. And if you want to get that pulled up while I'm talking, that'd be awesome. But yeah, I, you, know, I, 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 you got it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Matthew 5, verse 32, the part from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there's the other one, too, that's important, too. But this one says, um, it hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. And then there's the other one where the Pharisees are kind of tempting him with a similar question, and he gives a pretty similar response. Yeah. And so I, I think that what this gets down to is a, a couple basic things. Um, one, we do not preach a gospel that is filled with divorce. That is kind of first and foremost. There really is no technical divorce in uh, ceilings. There is an annulment of ceilings, essentially, where the ceiling is, right, whatever is bound in heaven is bound on earth, and what is loosed in heaven is loosed on earth, and essentially it's being loose. So it, it you know, get into semantics to what you want, but it's basically the equated version of divorce, right? But we don't go about preaching that divorce is a good thing or something that we ought to do. Um, except, as Jesus says, for adultery. And even then, bishops very often work with uh, couples in those kind of a situation to try to work on those relationships. But I think uh, one, one key element uh, in this question about why we don't necessarily teach and enforce it to the degree that I think the scriptures outline it is we, we really do permit people to do what they want, right? There really is this law of freedom of choice, a, a part of agency where Every single person, regardless of who you are or where you are in life, can make whatever decision you want, whether or not that is a sin. And often, I would suggest divorces, especially today, are fall into that. They, they fall into that category of sin, where when you divorce that person for a lot of the reasons that we do, and I, and I would suggest perhaps there are a few exceptions to just the blanket statement of adultery, right? If if there is a super physically abusive or, I don't know, th there are some really, really bad situations out there. Um, but I, I think those are more rare than not. And uh, more often than not, um, actually, I, I, I am of the belief, as Spencer Kimball taught, that every single marriage can and should work as long as it is built upon the foundation of repentance but th that's kind of the the i don't know basic thought i have uh what about you mike what are your thoughts on this yeah i mean it's a tough one right it's it is um difficult because first off jesus is clear in it um but there are also the there's the cultural context um i mean maybe you know this i i actually do not know could a woman divorce her husband in that culture or is it only a man being able to divorce the, the wife? I believe it was only the man able to divorce the wife. Okay. So maybe, you know, if there was the context of like abuse and there was, it was taken into account that, you know, or offered for a woman to be able to divorce her husband, then maybe that would be talked about in there. Cause yeah, I'm with you. Like, you know, if, if a husband is, you know, severely abusing his wife, you know, how can, 
how can she be forced to stay in the relationship that is to such a severe detriment to her, um, you know, to even, even threatening her life. Uh, so I, you know, I would like to think that there's leeway there. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem clear. And, you know, the Catholics are, I, as far as I understand, are pretty strict on this, that, you know, divorce is not part of the Lord's law. And in fact, that's why King Henry VIII made his own church, you know, the Anglican <laughs> church, because that was such a big deal. He, he really wanted to divorce his wife or kill him. So, uh, um, yeah. I, so one thing that's interesting to me here is the reasoning that Jesus gives. And I'm going to read the, the second scripture that to give a little more background of why Jesus teaches this and how he elaborates. So the Pharisees come to him and they tempt him and say pretty much, is it lawful for man to, um, to divorce his wife for any or every reason? Is there like, is there any valid reason, you know? And Jesus says, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. Wherefore, or what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And then they go on and uh, Jesus keeps elaborating. But it's interesting because I think there is some higher law behind this, that the union between the husband and wife, and I think this includes the sexual union too. Maybe there's some spiritual power behind this, but it is such a strong union that God unites them and to take them apart or to enter into a sexual union or covenant with another person by virtue of that sexual act, um, that it is dividing asunder what God had put together. And I don't know, I mean, maybe that's too speculative here, but obviously Jesus is saying this is the reasoning behind it, or at least part of the reasoning behind why you should not divorce. It is a very serious thing. And the only reason that he gives as justification is if one, you know, they commit adultery, which would break off that union. Um, it's a union that comes be- between a man and a woman, and it can only be made between a man and a woman. And that union is in force unless one of those two partners has a sexual intercourse, as far as I'm understanding, with another partner. Um, so that's that's very interesting to me. I wonder if there's, you know, some principle or the actions and, um, you know, in some sense, I know this is getting more in a, um, maybe some people are uncomfortable talking about sexual things, but I think it is a very sacred ritual <clears throat> in some sense. Um, the sexual union, when done in the right place at the right time, um, under the covenant, you know, that with each other, um, it is a very sacred act. And I think it has spiritual um, consequences. And maybe this is part of it. So a little speculative there, but that's what really interests me behind Jesus's reasoning here. Yeah, no, I, I love that uh, train of thought that you're kind of taking this through. Um, and it really is interesting, you know, how often the scriptures really speak about you know, what God hath put together, let no man divide asunder, right? That um, marriage really is something that involves not just you and your spouse, but also God, especially those who have um, been sealed in the temple, uh, understand that a little bit more. And I think that the the symbolism behind man and wife, where, you know, man truly becomes complete with the, the rib by his side, right? Where there's all these little nooks and crannies that just fit together perfectly that man without the woman is nothing before the lord essentially um and when we look at it in this way when jesus essentially says hey there is no other way out of this um, once you have truly given yourselves to each other then adultery um, and if you do it in any other way you're going to be committing fornication or adultery um, against your spouse because you'll be unfaithful to them if you divorce them, if you break this law, this covenant that you've made. And I think that to some degree, that's kind of the sad culture that we live in is a, a, a land where laws and oaths and uh, covenants and promises of any kind really kind of fall by the wayside um, as we do, do what we please rather than what we've promised. And um, I don't know, I think one of the saddest things that we see today obviously has been talked about in conference many, many times, but is the degradation of of the family unit and it really starts with the parents right the responsibility of parents to rear their children to raise them unto the lord Um, and it comes down to this covenant that they make to each other and with god and um i i think 
far, far too often we take these covenants and these these sacred promises that we make um, far too lightly. And we go about trying to make excuses for our lack of repentance or the lack of repentance of our partner. And that is a very, very dangerous direction. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, the family is central to God's plan. Um, what is it, doesn't it say in the family proclamation it's the most important like social structure in eternity or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, something um, like that. And uh, David Ogme K, right? A, any, anything that you uh, do in this world cannot make up for what is not made in the home. Um, that is the most important work you will do is inside of your own family home. Yeah, that's huge. And, uh, you know, also, I, I've said this before, but there's so much fulfillment in, in pursuing the, the righteous uh, building of a family on, on good principles. We fall short. All of us are imperfect. And so every union in every marital union here on earth is going to have imperfections and flaws, but we're striving toward the ideal. And that ideal is the most fulfilling thing. I mean, we, we are made for that to, to be united with, with our partner, a man and woman, and to, to bear children and raise them. And, you know, establishing that family, it's just, my wife and I were talking again about this the other night and we're just like, man, it's so fulfilling. It's, it's amazing. Like it gives you so much meaning to be consumed in a cause so much greater than yourself, than your own life to, you know, to assume this, this, uh, caring for extra lives and extra, you know, it's, yeah. it's such a cool act. So I, I very much promote the family and I know that Satan's, you know, biggest goal right now is to disintegrate the family. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very scary. And, uh, it's, it's a very quickly changing it's a world that's changing very quickly sorry i can't even speak english today maybe i'll pull out my spanish <laughs> um but I, I think that there's even a little bit more symbolism i mean if we if we look at the, this family unit kind of how it's displayed in the scriptures right where where jesus christ is the bridegroom right and the church is the woman or, or his wife as we learn in the book of revelation um and i don't know i i, I think throughout all the scriptures if there's a common theme that's there um amongst the 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 very few that consistently happen throughout scripture, that one of the few common themes that I've noticed is God's long suffering and patience with Israel or, or Jesus Christ's long suffering, the bridegroom's long suffering and patience with the bride. Right. And I think that goes both ways that um, in, in reality, in a true and happy relationship, you really have to be patient with each other. And the most unforgivable sin or the first commandment, right. If we look at it this way, right. The bridegroom gives, you know, essentially his law to the bride to some degree. And the first law is to not worship other gods. It's to worship the true and living God. And, and, and that's the same thing in these marriage relationships that yes, while you might go and break the Sabbath, things will still work out. But when you go and, and commit adultery, when you go and worship other gods, when, when the bridegroom and the bride's covenant to each other is completely forsaken, um, that's where the danger really comes in. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that analogy in the scriptures that he gives. Um, you know, he binds himself to the, the children of Israel as his bride. And the only justification in the Jewish law was adultery. And that is exactly what the children of Israel did. Spiritual prostitution, it calls it, you know, worshiping other gods and selling themselves for not. And, um, you know, Isaiah talks about that a lot. Where's the bill of your mother's divorcement? Um, but yeah, I, I love that analogy. I think it has a lot of application, especially since, you know, God, according to the law, had every reason to abandon us, you know, the covenant people who had continually rejected him and prostituted themselves and committed adultery, uh, according to that analogy. Uh, yet yeah. he did not, which is crazy. Yeah. And uh, if he is as patient as he has been with Israel throughout all time, how much more patient ought we to be with each other, right? And forgiving and kind and, and tender and to try to gather us as, as hens. <laughs> right. So, um, okay. So just answering that question in a simple answer, then, um, you know, why, why do we do divorce if Jesus clearly condemned it except for, uh, fornication? Um, do you think it's just because we're, you know, God kind of meets us where we're at in our culture and our society today is just on a lower level. Um, I, I think to some degree. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't fleshing think it, out. I don't think that God ever permits 
um, or he never invites us to commit sin, but he does permit it in the sense that he's not going to stop us from breaking a law, right? So for example, whether or not you get divorced today after you're sealed without that um, caveat of committing adultery, um, it's a sin. It's, it's not something that should be taken lightly, especially as lightly as it is taken. Right. I know that I know that relationships are hard. Tell you know, I, I've lived with roommates. I can't imagine, you know, having a, a, a true and, and passionate bond with someone and having that forsaken over petty little quabblings. Um, and I, I really believe that um, whether or not you choose to, you know, have, have those ceilings remitted, um, it, it doesn't change the fact that what you do would be considered a sin. Yeah. Okay. I I like that. I think that's that's well put because it's um it's not condoning it. It's not like oh well well Jesus allows it so you know it's fair game. It's it's good. It's it, it still should be considered sinful, but it's just permitted the way you're saying it. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think that's well put. Okay. Hopefully that's a somewhat acceptable answer to you guys listening. All I right. Think it's as good as we can do. <laughs> well, we'll run with it, I guess. Uh, you got anything else to add, or we'll move on to the next one? No, let's move on. Okay. And this next question is Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. And this is a quote, by the way. Is he able, but not willing? He is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call himself God? And this is by, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, uh, Epicurus. Epicurus. Yeah. You should have just taken credit for it. You just like <laughs> asked the question in that <laughs> lavish, articulate way. Hearken <laughs> unto my words, oh ye. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. We just start talking like Greek philosophers to each other. <laughs> No, yeah, is it, that that question's well put. I think some the the lavishness of the words can sometimes uh, get you caught away and, and uh, obscure the meaning. But it's uh, it's really beautiful the way he puts it. So Epicurus was a, a Greek philosopher, if I'm remembering correctly, and um, he was popular for establishing hedonism, but which is like, uh, you know, pleasure is the the primary objective in life. Uh, but he taught it in a way that's very different than what you're probably thinking. It wasn't like hippie free love kind of stuff. Well. Not exactly. Anyway, not to get on a tangent. This problem, uh, phrased in other words, is the problem of evil. So how does evil get, exist if God exists? If God is omnipotent, he has all power, and God is good, and God knows about the evil, then that put, poses a weird question, a weird circumstance, because you're like, okay, God knows about power to stop it. He can stop it. He wants to stop it, but he doesn't why not you know and so this is the the question that has really stumped philosophers uh and especially theists for a long long time since i mean the beginning before thomas aquinas and before plato and aristotle i'm sure um and philosophers have been taking jabs at it ever since and i don't think any theist has given a satisfactory answer by that definition of god and i frankly i don't think there is an answer because it's a logical contradiction um, unless you rephrase the, the parameters of God um, that you're using in this equation. And in fact, that's what we can do in our religion uh, because of the, the restored gospel, at least my take. I'm going to have to take a little liberty here to, to speculate slightly, um, but I'll give you guys my take on solving the problem of evil. So um, as Epicurus points out here, um, if, is God willing to prevent evil? I would say, yes, he is. And then Epicurus says, but not able. And I would say, yes, yes, he, he is willing to prevent it, but not able to prevent it in the entirety. And Epicurus follows, then he is not omnipotent. And I say, yes, you're right. He is not omnipotent in the fullest, fullest extent, to, extent of the word. We believe in our church in a limited God. <laughs> I'm putting this very bluntly. Um, and this hits people, you know, like a two by four across the head. Cause they're like, what? No, God can do anything. No, God can't do anything for one. He can't do logically, um, you know, contradictory things. He can't make a square circle. Um, you know, he can't let an unclean thing into the kingdom of heaven because it would contradict his laws. Um, even Alma says, you know, if there, if God was a liar, it, he would cease to be God. 
So there are certain things God cannot do just by definition of being God. Um, so as we, if we follow, we've established that God is willing to prevent, prevent evil, but not able to. He is not fully omnipotent. He can do every possible thing within his power, but he cannot do every impossible thing on top of that. Um, so then he follows, is he both able and willing from whence cometh evil, blah, blah, blah. So already the premises that this argument is based on don't apply to the God that we believe in. So also there are some other unique beliefs that we have as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints having a restored gospel um, stemming out of uh, I mean, Joseph Smith's teachings mainly and the restored scriptures that he translated or brought about. So here are some of these unique beliefs and how they tie into the problem of evil. So one is we do not believe in creation ex nihilo. So that means we don't believe God just stamped his fingers and brought all of matter into existence. We believe that matter is eternal and has always existed and it's as eternal as God. It has no beginning or end. So we don't believe that uh, God can create matter. That's a pretty big deal. Um, secondly, we believe that, um, let's see, what else was I going to say? There's another big one. I can't remember it right off the top of my head right now. Maybe it'll come up later. But going off of that, if God did create everything out of nothing, then that puts the whole burden and the weight of justice and solving evil on his shoulders. You know, if you create something and it brings about harm, then it's your responsibility to solve it, or it's your fault that there is harm. But if God did not create the universe, then he is not responsible for all the things that occur in it. And uh, secondly, we believe in the limited God in a sense. And I know that sounds blasphemous, but it, it's not really, it's just logical. If you, if you follow the scriptures and, and the consequences, um, so if God has the power, so even if God didn't create the universe from nothing and yet he had the power to absolve the universe of evil, but didn't do it, there would be a problem. But we say that God does not have the power to absolve the universe of evil, nor does he, as we establish, have the responsibility to absolve the universe of evil. So he has nor the not the power, nor the responsibility. Um, and so I think this this really breaks the problem of evil down for Latter-day Saints in a way that is very unique for theists, let alone Christians. Uh, I'll start, so I'll let you talk now. Okay, do you have any additional thoughts or questions or things you want to say on this? No, yeah, I, I agree with pretty much 99% of that premise. And, and it's, uh, it's true that, uh, and, and it's a hard thing to grasp because, you know, the, the scriptures talk about God having all power and all things and stuff. And um, I, I think the, the point of the matter is exactly like you're saying, right? That God is God because he does exactly what he does. He, he lives the laws he does. And because he is perfect in those things, he is able to continue to be God and have all power. Now, I, I don't know, and this is somewhat speculative, I guess, and so um, one thing I would say is I would suggest that God could absolve the entire universe of all evil, but he would cease to be God, and it would really screw things up, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, it just it would not work as well as we think in our um, small human minds. Yeah, um, I, would con I can concede that. Okay, and that, that, that's the only thing that I would, I would add is I, I do believe that he does in all sincerity have all power that he really is omnipotent in the true sense of the word but that is constrained by law and so if you look at it in a very wide and broad sense like you've been talking about um to to the extent that a lot of people believe that he literally just does whatever he wants and it doesn't matter that is not true he, he can do whatever he wants within the bounds of the laws that are as eternal as gods themselves are as eternal as matter as eternal as anything that ever has or ever will exist um and because he obey obeys and abides by those laws he is god now he also is able to enact certain laws that are lesser laws um, which basically permit us to grow and become like him um, and organize the, the world to some degree uh, under his own direction um and so yeah i, I agree 100 i don't think i can really add anything i mean honestly that's it's a very well-rounded thing but it but it does sound very blasphemous and so i think putting it in its proper perspective where you recognize um that he, he the reason why he he can't banish all evil it's not necessarily that he doesn't have the power but if he did it it would it would cause him to cease to be god 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is an important distinction because you can take it too far with the, the limitations of God imposing these limitations on him and take it out of, out of the proper um, application because that it is important that we believe in God being the most powerful being in the universe, because, you know, as Joseph Smith or Sidney Rigdon, whoever wrote lectures on faith was saying that, you know, if he is not the most powerful being, then he can't promise us the things he's promising, promising, because there's the threat that someone more powerful might come and rob him or, you know, hurt her, harm him and uh, just uh, make it impossible for him to, to be good on his word. So in order for him to, you know, us to have faith in him, complete faith, complete knowledge that he will fulfill his word. He has to be the most powerful being in the universe um, to be able to offer the things he's promised us. So I think that is important. Um, This is just a little side tangent, uh, Cade, but since we're talking about the law, um, so the law of the universe or the laws, whatever they are as eternal as God's, what do you think that encompasses? Is it like morality or there are other things and if so, you know, does this mean that just inherent in the nature of the universe, there exist moral laws? Uh, yeah. So, um, I don't know. And, and this is somewhat speculative based on Joseph Smith's later teachings over the last, like, two years of his life. Um, but but it, it, it's based on the principle that he teaches that um, there are gods without number, right? He has an awesome sermon, if you haven't read it. It's not as popular as the King Fallout sermon, but but it's called... The Sermon in the Grove, uh, I think it was given April 1844. Um, but it, it, it's it's very cool and, and, and powerful, and, and it kind of touches on a lot of the similar content as the King Fallout Sermon. And I don't know, I, I think when you look at things in the grand scheme, when there are gods without end, right, that there always have been and always will be, right? And Joseph Smith kind of expounds upon it as though it's a circle, right? It has no beginning and it has no end. And the only way that that can happen, right? And and he teaches this, right? That Jesus went and did the exact same thing that he saw his father do, which he continues, is to lay down his life and take it up again. And that's the same thing that every God before them has done. And so the only assumption I can take based on that is that every God before them has done that same thing based on the same principles. And one thing that we can understand from that is that this plan of salvation, the way that we work out our salvation is the same throughout all eternity from God to God, angel to angel, devil to devil. Um, throughout all of the eternities past and all the eternities future, there's only one plan that ever will and can save. Um, and it's the one that we enact, right? Now, I think in my opinion, there are some lesser laws, right? Like smaller commandments, for example, I'll give like the word of wisdom to some degree. Um, a lot of mosaic laws um, and, and so on and so forth, that there are some lesser laws that I believe God can enact and, and has a little bit of leeway and sway. But uh, Doctrine and Covenants even kind of talks about how God's honor is his power. And, and so, yes, so getting back to kind of the root of the question, I, I, I genuinely believe that there are some laws that are as eternal as God's themselves, as eternal as anything. And when we can find out those laws, find those root foundational principles um, that we really start to connect ourselves into eternity. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I like that. I think it's an interesting topic. I mean, a lot of people speculate differently here. You know, you got Cleon Skousen with his God science stuff, the intelligences and everything. And, um, you know, lots of people have different ideas and, um, and I think it is interesting. Um you know, but man, our, our perspective is so limited. We're talking about such vast topics here. You know, when we say the laws of the universe, even I was thinking, um, we don't know that it's just the universe. Maybe the universe is just a pebble in, in all of matter, you know, with a multiverse, who knows what, what infinitudes are out there of yeah. energy and matter and time and everything. So, um, you know, I, I like to just take a stance that's <laughs> very open, but also acknowledging the, the fundamental and important truths uh, that we've hit on that, that God is as powerful um, as any being can be. And there is no threat um, to the validity of his, his covenants and else he's made toward us. And he's fully competent in bringing about his word. Um, so I, I just want to clarify that. And man, if anyone's not a member and listening to this, they're, they need a more, they need more elaboration on the limits of God. And I promise if, if you're here and you're like, 
your mind's blown that we're talking about a limited God. I promise it would make more sense if we, if we showed more examples, because there are certainly things that any Christian must believe that God cannot do unless you're like a hardcore Calvinist or something, but but (laughs) then you're believing in a God that has got other problems. So anyway, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Yeah, and and I'll I'll add one other point, just kind of a backtrack for a sec. I do think it's an important principle to recognize too that God does have power in Himself, um, that His faith is founded within Himself to a degree that I don't think any, if not very very few mortals, even can kind of understand. Um, but in in a real sense, just like how we give blessings and enact miracles in the name of Jesus Christ, and uh, that that God's do not need to do it in the name of any other for they have that power from within themselves because in my opinion, they live those laws so perfectly. Yeah. Very interesting. Is it um, DNC 124 that talks about the pretty much the like order and behavior of God and how, you, you know, things flow into them without compulsion, without compulsory means. What is the section I'm thinking of? Ooh, I, oh, I can't remember. It's on the tip of my tongue. Um, oh, and look it up. But that I think is an interesting one to read if anyone's uh, curious about this subject and wants to study it more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Without compulsory means. Yeah. It's 121 actually, but yeah, it says the Holy ghost should be that constant companion and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. And thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion and without compulsory means, it shall flow unto thee forever and ever. And I think maybe that's the status that God is at where because of his righteousness, you know, he, he has this scepter, scepter system so, so benevolent, so honorable that the intelligences of the universe just flow unto him. They, they yeah. follow his truth and his light, you know, maybe like a bug following the light, except that's a bad analogy because then they die when they, they hit the light. <laughs> <laughs> but we just you know he's the brightest source of truth in the universe and we just flow to him and we obey him um unless we reject that truth which has been you know in in us from the beginning which uh, that reminds me of dnc 93 verse like a uh, 35 or 6 or something like that yeah but just saying you know this is the condemnation of man because that which was in the beginning was made manifest to them and they disobeyed the lie or they were you know rejected it yeah absolutely and that's kind of uh, what the entire gospel is built on is God found himself amongst a, a midst of intelligences and wanted to help them become like unto himself. And here we are to kind of follow in his footsteps. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're, we're definitely in the speculative grounds. If anyone, you know, is listening to this and concerned about some of these topics, just know that, you know, these are kind of speculative. So I, I hope you can discern between the, the fundamentals and the, the parts that we're just kind of, you know, given our best thoughts on right now. But, um, you know, the, the fundamentals are really all we, we need to be grounded in. Absolutely. All right. Well, I got about nothing. I mean, without going into some deeper areas. I, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll there. <laughs> without becoming heretics. Just kidding. Okay, um, I'll ask this last question then for you, Cade. Are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Christian? And some accusations against us, and which stem, you know, result in us being called something other than Christian, stem from some of the major differences we have with other Christians, uh, such as the Godhead, theosis, rejection of creation ex nihilo, believing Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, baptisms for the dead, temple rites, etc. Hmm. All right. Well, I, I actually really like this. Um, I like this question a lot. Yes, we definitely are Christian. Now, I will preface this with this, and I think you have to build a good foundation with every question so that uh, everyone's on the same page. First and foremost, if you define Christian as those who worship the true and living God, Yes, we are Christian. If you define Christian as those who worship the God of the Old and New Testament, yes, we are Christian. Um, and if you define Christians as those who worship a living God, yes, we are Christian. And if you define Christian as those who are the only ones who worship a true and living God, like I had said, then we are the only Christians upon the face of the earth. 
Um, what if you define it as uh, those who are Protestant? <laughs> then no. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay, I think that's what people mean. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and 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 so that's the thing is, I, I uh, this is probably bad, but it, it, it's a little bit divisive, and I think that's a hard point to follow. I, I I think it's important to recognize that those who worship Christ and believe in His name are good people. Those who worship Allah or um, any type of uh, you know, Asian God or ancient Greek God or whatever type of God it might be. Wait, you saying Jesus can't be Asian? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk about the purple <laughs> Jesus theory all over again. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. No, I, 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 here's, here's the thing. There are good people everywhere and they worship many different gods. But in the real sense, those who worship the true and living God that gives revelation today that really does speak that is the only God that is real and has power to save and to enact miracles um, in the true sense of the word where they can save the souls of man. Um, we are the only people on earth that can be defined under that umbrella um, to the full degree. Now, though, now and you can start, and, and this is a fairly divisive topic, and we don't talk about it very much today, um, but it, it's the reality. And the reality is this, and, and it gets to the principle that Joseph Smith taught consistently. Um, that there is, he says, and I, I think this is the exact quote, but if not, it's a close paraphrase of it. And uh, he says, there is no salvation between the two lids of, of, of the Bible without a legal administrator. And, and that's the fact of the matter, that we are connected to God through covenant, that God saves people because of covenant. He is a God of covenants, and he always has been. And if you do not have someone who can perform that covenant, then you are not sealed to him and will not be saved in the full sense, right? Or exalted as we often speak of it today. And the, the reality is that there's only one church that has been authorized by him. Now that's not to suggest that every single person that is ever baptized in our church will be exalted. That is not true. Many, many people do not live up to their covenants. But in the real sense, if, if we're gonna get down to those who are Christian as those who truly worship God, then yeah, we kind of are the only Christians out there. Um, and as, as devout and as much as I will praise anyone who goes out to, to pray to the true God, <laughs> let them let do so. And if they want to pray to some floating pasta monster, I'll let them do that as well. Um, but that does not mean that they will have their prayers answered. Wow, we're going to get some angry pastafarians given <laughs> sending us hate mail okay this is the second time you've criticized them publicly well they're, they're, they're welcome to send me some fruit of their work i'll always take a bowl of pasta any night <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i i do appreciate your answer and man it's i mean that's a that's a bold one like someone accuses you of um you know not being christian you flip it over and say actually i'm we're the only christians <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know it, yeah i think it is divisive the way the question's um phrased and and one of the reasons it's so divisive is because it's it's frankly accusing people of not believing in christ you know that's that's what i think of when i think of christian it's like believers of christ and followers of christ so to call someone not christian is to you know almost try to deprive them of their fundamental belief which you know we fervently hold in jesus christ um so, you know, even if, if we call other mainstream Christians or Protestant Christians, you know, not Christian, I'm sure they would be offended too. But, you know, logistically speaking, yes, well, like you said, the administration of the ordinances, that's a very important factor. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you're accurate in saying that. But in another sense, I could see um, anyone who believes Christ being called a Christian. So, in some sense, you know, they are still Christian too. So I, I, I'm only sympathetic because I feel angry when someone accuses me of not being Christian, when my whole life is centered on Christ and his teachings, you know, I'm like, I sacrifice. I mean, I'm willing to give everything. I live my whole life based on these principles mm -hmm. after Jesus Christ. And you want to strip me of that, that association with Jesus. Like that's infuriating. Um, not only that, but it's, it's Frank, it's right out wrong you know it's flat out wrong is yeah. a better way to say that <laughs> but um so what i think is silly about this is that this often comes from protestants you know who stem from the lutherans the calvinists the you know the, the baptist sects and so forth 
Um, these people accuse Catholics of being non-Christian. They say that Catholics are not Christian because they believe in, you know, they worship Mary and et cetera. And they, they have all these accusations that infuriate Catholics as well. Um, and they do that. And then they also accuse us of being not Christian. And I find that very ironic because if anyone is Christian, it's going to be the Catholics or us, you know, a restored <laughs> church or the root from which all the other Protestant reformations came. Exactly. You know, it's like you want to borrow the Trinity doctrine, which was invented by the, the Catholics from the, I mean, kind of borrowing from the Greeks idea of God. Um, but you want to take the Trinity, which is most Catholic invented doctrine. And then you want to shove them out of the club and say, oh, you're not Christian. We're the only ones that are Christian. And, uh, you know, it's funny because the, the main differences from which these accusations stem are the very differences which I think define us as rather the ones being Christian. You know, the Trinity is not a biblical teaching. It is not right. true Christianity. Um, true Christianity understood is the Godhead and theosis and rejection of creation ex nihilo. I mean, Jews, there's evidence that Jews didn't even believe in creation ex nihilo until some, I think one of the apocryphal texts like Maccabees or something, somewhere in the apocrypha, it's kind of mentioned there. Um, as, but before that, you know, it really wasn't established as the understanding of how God created. And if you go back to the the ancient understanding of these doctrines, especially the Trinity, man, you can dig into that with how the Greeks influenced that philosophy and especially the, the verbiage of without parts or passions in the Nicene Creed. Um, and then, you know, Jesus and Lucifer being brothers. Well, we're all sons and daughters of God. So, I mean, just by definition, come on. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. I mean, if you put it all in there. <laughs> and that's, that's the thing though, is, is I think often when we talk about, well, what is a Christian you know, a very prominent belief nowadays is, well, you have to believe in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and, you know, and, and, and in every other creed created in every other ecumenical council that they ever created, you know, without divine revelation. You have to believe that there can be no more words from God's lips but what he has already spoken, for he cannot speak anymore, right? And, and you have a lot of just interesting doctrines that come from the worst sources that simply if anything, we're not just not inspired, but we're sourced to some degree from Satan himself because they truly distort basic gospel truths that really, really limit people's growth and repentance and potential in this life. And so I, I think that um, it really comes down to, well, what do you define a Christian? And and I'll, I'll back up my statement that I did say earlier. I know it's a little bit punchy and it might offend a few people and I... Uh, you know that's that's the sad reality of life is um we there there are disagreements but they're there for a reason and, yeah there is uh, a right and wrong so i mean don't <laughs> need to beat around the bush right yeah and, and that, that's the thing is i'll get down to this and this is one thing i actually write about in my book a little bit is um we we, we can talk about christ all the time but when when we talk about a christian i would suggest a, a very basic term of what a christian is is someone who worships christ right? That believes in his saving power and attempts to, to utilize it in their life. Um, and in a, in a general sense, yes, everyone who professes Christ's name believes in Christ. And so that's a very good thing. But I think if you get into a little bit of a deeper root of it, if you, if you start really understanding, well, who then is Christ? Is he the one who just lived and then died and then evaporated into some spirit ghost thing that envelops all things and isn't all things and are about all things? No, that's, that's, you know, that's the light of Christ. That's not Jesus Christ himself. And and it's an important distinction because they are very, very different because Jesus Christ is a living being um, with corporeal nature still. And we know this because he has revealed himself many, many times in the last couple hundred years. Um, and, and I think that when you start labeling the name of Christ on anything from a water bottle to a bag of peanuts, you really start to dilute the power that he has. <laughs> Only people who are lived in the south will understand huh? <laughs> well and, and that's the thing is that's that's what the israelites did when they went out and melted down a calf you know they they essentially said this is the god of israel this is the god that saved us and you think uh, the late the uh labeling of overuse of christ's name is kind of akin to a, um, idolatry it is <laughs> depending mm. on how you label it right if i if i go out and melt a molded calf and say hey this is jehovah this is jesus christ this is the the god that's going to save me it, it won't i'll tell you that if anything it's going to damn you 
And, and the reason that is, is because not only are you worshiping a false God, but you're, you're putting the name of, of the true God upon a false idol. Mm, yeah, there's a big difference. You know how the Jews like wouldn't even say God's name. They just like leave it blank and stuff. And then here, yeah, <laughs> you're right. Like on food labels and people's hat and shirts, like Christ is King. And you know, it's, I, it's good sentiment, you know, it's, yeah. it's their worshipful attitude and, I don't think there's any malintention there, but yeah, the, <laughs> the uh, repercussions of some of those actions, I think could be taken as sacrilege, at least by those old standards, they surely would. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Let, let, let me put a little bit of a, a, a take on those who, who, who are genuine, you know, believers of Christ that just maybe don't know any better. Um, God, God judges everyone based off the light they know, right? If, if all you know is, is Christ is, is the Lord, and you go and worship him. Great. That's, that's wonderful. I'm glad that you're on a good path where you, you know, go to church on Sunday. You, you, you have a Sabbath day, you do those basic good Christian values. You love your neighbor. Not just, you're not just kind, but you're actually nice and, and good and charitable. Um, it's not just the surface level kind of crap. I, I, I genuinely think that those are the kind of people that will accept the gospel, you know, whether in this life or in the next, because they are. Um, and God will judge them accordingly. Um, and I, I have more hope for them than I do for the members who are baptized and never do a single thing in their life. So, mm. very blunt here, but uh, yeah, I think you're. I, I mean, I think you're right on. It's, <laughs> it's very like unfamiliar to hear someone just not beat around the bush, though. <laughs> in our culture, you know, it's like <laughs> no one wants to say anything that could be taken as slightly offensive to anyone and, and many times it's at the expense and sometimes the ob- obfuscation of truth you know uh so i i appreciate it uh, i like hearing people just say what they what they believe <laughs> well if you ever want uh, someone to say what they believe you're i'm always here <laughs> i'll just listen to a bruce r mcconkey talk <laughs> <That'll do it. laughs> but yeah no i think uh Man, honestly, those are my people, the kind of people that will say something, even to the extent where they kind of err on the side of maybe overstating things and and coming off a little dogmatic and maybe saying something that, uh, you know, was slightly opinionated and declaring it almost as, you know, kind of doctrine. Yeah, I, I actually like those people better because they, you know, establish clear lines. And I would rather say the full truth and maybe have a little extra error than to say something that was only a partial truth and in that sense rob people of the full truth by not stating it fully you know beating around the bush yeah absolutely and i think that's something that we've tried away i mean maybe we could do this as a a question one of these days but um the gospel is plain and simple that's what the book of mormon teaches very clearly over and over and over again right that um it, it it uh it pricks those to the heart very deeply and it cuts them like a knife to the heart those who are wicked um, because it is blunt because it, it you know it's it's not this flowery wording necessarily but it's just plain and basic truths and and as nephi said you know i i delight in plainness and i think that that's how jesus taught that's how everyone has taught throughout scripture and i think that's how we ought to teach as well that uh, sometimes it, it does hurt to hear and sometimes it's hard to to follow but um the Lord loveth who he, who he chasteneth, and the gospel really is, it, it's plain. I, I, I like to think of kind of, uh, I, I want to say it was, who was it? Heber C. Kimball, maybe? He says it of, of Brigham Young, but he says, uh, actually, I think it was John Tedder said it of, of Brigham Young, but he, he talks about Brigham Young in this kind of a, a fashion. He expounds on him as being a, a man. He's like, you know, many people are, are very flowery and ornate and, you know, just very good at putting together sentences and knowledgeable on things like a beautiful hilt of a sword where it's gold and it's encrusted with jewels and beautifully formed. But Brigham Young was not that kind of a man. He was the, he was the blade of the sword with an edge on both sides. And, <laughs> and I don't know, I, I, I genuinely believe that the gospel is simple and that contrary to popular belief, there, there are lines drawn. Um, that there is a black and there is a white in the gospel. Uh, there is a right and there is a wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, m- mature listeners are able to to see the truth um, in people, even, you know, even if sometimes, you know, you see the fringe of 
their personality coming out. Um, even, you know, and to the degree where, you know, Brigham Young might say something that, that was racist, you know, it's like, Oh, well, that was kind of racist, but it does not mean everything else is false. You know, it does not mean it wasn't a prophet of God. It doesn't mean that everything else in that sermon couldn't have been true. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the problems of, you know, how we digest things in this culture. You know, they're like, wait a minute, George Washington had slaves, pull all the statues down of them. You know, it's like, what, what have you guys come to? You know, it's, do we have no intellectual integrity and maturity? You know, can we not see things in context? And are we so steeped in presentism that we can't handle understanding anyone else's perspective? So yeah, that does bother me, but I, yeah, I, I really agree with what you're saying. Yeah. And to kind of bring that comment back to even just this question a little bit, right. Um, you can look at it in the sense of those who are non-believers in the sense that we, we would claim where they might worship Christ, but it's not the, the true and living God as we, as we believe. Right. Um, that though they are true and genuine, though they might have a fault or two in, in error of doctrine, if they're on that path and they're leading towards a full faith in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. And that, that's the truth. Now that does mean they will have to be baptized by authority. It does mean right. they do have to accept the gospel. But if you are a genuine believer and worshiper of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's important. Some people go on the, the train of saying, oh, yeah, well, pretty much if you're a good person, I believe you'll be saved. You know, that's mm-hmm. the kind of God I believe in. But, you know, while that may be true, it's also true that, well, th- that doesn't mean there won't be suffering. There won't be consequences for not, you know, having the gospel sooner. Um, and those, all those ordinances will still have to be had. And, you know, you, you got to follow the steps um, to climb up the ladder. Um, everyone's got to go up the ladder, but, you know, everyone can have the chance. And right. I do believe in a fair God. Absolutely. And uh, there is no second chance towards exaltation, apparently, according to DNC 76. But that's maybe a topic for another day. Oh, yeah. Are we going to talk about that? Can you climb <laughs> up the celestial, the kingdoms of glory after you're resurrected? No. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, darn it. We're going to leave that as a cliffhanger. Oh, sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, Cade just spoiled it for you guys. <laughs> the answer's no. <laughs> you probably knew that. All right. Anyway, <laughs> otherwise, you might want to just. <laughs> live Play around in the, in, in the mud all day if, if that were yeah right i'll be a yeah young boy forever i'll grow up later when i'm yeah. a few eons old all right well you guys have heard us um going off tangents for a while now but we uh you know these are good topics and we do believe that you know these these fundamental unique aspects of our beliefs are what make this a beautiful beautiful restored church the restored church. I believe that these truths um, that shine out and make us different from other uh, reformed sects of the corrupt branch or the corrupt tree, you know, we, we stick out like a sore thumb in many ways. And I love that. It, it's actually one of the biggest things that makes me love the gospel. So um, I, I hope that's a testament to you guys. Um, and uh, it's interesting. It, it paints an interesting scenario where we can have these kind of discussions. So Okay, do you want to add anything else before we wrap it up? Yeah, absolutely. Same kind of line. Uh, I hope I haven't scared anyone off that may not be a member of the church. But um, if you truly love Jesus Christ, come and learn more. Uh, It really is the true gospel, and it really has been restored. There really is revelation and authority upon the earth today. That is my testimony. Amen. Well put. Okay, well, join us next week for another episode, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later.